Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first episode of Voices of Stai, of the Stai podcast. We're joined by Mr. Eric Ferenz. Um, not so loud, not so loud. I want to destroy so, their earbuds. Mr. Today. Eric Ferenz is, a, is an English teacher. So, um, yeah, please introduce yourself. Uh, hello. Oh that was the most soothing thing I've ever heard. <laughs> okay, and we're more video. And we're, it's, this is hosted by me, Aaron, uh, me, Cheyenne, John, and uh, Alan's, of course. MVP, our sound MVP. guy, our sound guy. Okay, so first off, John, what, what was your intro question you wanted? Oh, okay. We're gonna we're gonna throw you right into the deep end. We're gonna ask you. One really controversial, um, quick a fire philosophical question. Yes. Yeah. If oh, you get this snap. wrong, the entire school will hate you. <laughs> okay. All right. Three, two, one, start. Hot dogs or hamburgers? Hamburgers. Uh, Oreos, cream then cookie or whole? I don't even know how to answer that. Like, how would you, if, if I give you an Oreo right now, how are you going to eat it? I don't like sweets. Ooh. <laughs> you know, I so think that was the worst either. possible yeah, choice. Yeah, you can no, no, no. All right. Next question. Right. Was that Do- the wrong answer? <laughs> Dogs or cats? Dogs. Yes. Okay. Pineapples on pizza, yes or no? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd mess with that. Okay. And last one, favorite Disney movie? Probably Aladdin. Can oh, I add one in? Good choice. Fa- favorite Pixar movie? I don't know. I don't know the difference. <laughs> no, I'm, no, I can definitely. Amateur. I'm probably, t- probably Toy Story. Mm, I would say it's either Toy Story or Nemo for me. I mean, I go, I go, I go Monsters Inc. I'm oh, Monsters Inc. Oh, there's so many good ones. That's a good one. Okay. okay, so that was the end of the quick now that, uh, Pretty short. Okay, that was intense. Okay. Our, our listeners <laughs> so, will let you know. So, Mr. Friends, okay, there's a riot. You can expect. Yeah. So, Mr. <laughs> Friends, can you explain a little bit about yourself and how you are as a teacher to the people who might not have had you? What are you? <laughs> I think. No, because, I mean, you're talking about maybe teaching philosophy and, like, what is my teaching philosophy? And, and I think if you ask any teacher that, they should be able to answer that question. But a lot of my thing is stoking curiosity, getting people genuinely interested in what it is that we're doing, creating an environment where people feel safe and comfortable to share their ideas. I know that a lot of students are coming from classrooms where they don't want to say anything because there's that fear of sounding stupid or wrong and I really try to wean my students off of that mentality this like place where we can reach some sort of collective truth or collective understanding of a text and you know have a deeper appreciation that that it's not about I got to get these assignments done it's about I read this book and I feel a little bit more connected to humanity yeah Uh, I guess that's part of uh, like I've noticed that you're always in a good mood. Like you're never, you're never like on an off day. You never have a bad day because a lot of teachers like a lot of teachers are nice and everything, but every once in a while they have like a bad day and they don't really want to talk to kids. They don't really want to do anything. But I've only had you for a semester. But at the same time, I've never seen you have a bad day, and that's I just want to know how you do it. You should see me ninth period. <laughs> no. Um. I'm a morning person also. I really oh, okay. enjoy, you know, I, I like to get in early. I like to be in the school when nobody's around. I like to set up. But um, I also love my job. And so yeah. a lot of it is having those interactions. And I think if I'm effective and, you know, it's, this is my 11th year teaching, so I'm getting more confident in my craft and I feel like I know what I'm doing. And as a result, I'm able to achieve the goals that I want to in the classroom. And, and that feels good. It feels good to work with people and get that response from them, get that interest. You know, I also am very fortunate to work in a school where I come from a, rep, you know, a department that has a really great reputation. I think yeah. a lot of students expect to have these kind of cool, holistic experiences in their English classes. And so if I can be a part of that, I mean, it feels great, you know? Yeah. Would you say that your English students were engaged like right from the get-go, like as soon as you stepped in and became a teacher? Or did that take time to develop? It took a lot of time. You know, uh, one of the cool things about teaching is, um, I mean, that I like about teaching is you can mess up over and over again, but it's part of a process of what someone might call failing upward. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're constantly retooling and revising and trying to make sure that you can fashion lessons for students that will meet their interest. Any little thing that you can do to make it better. Um, when I first came in, I, I definitely 
felt like I could win over my students with enthusiasm and excitement, but the craft wasn't still there yet. Uh, there were still some things that I needed to work on and, and improve upon. I'm also very fortunate that you know my boss, Mr. Grossman, he really helps work with me and, and helps, helps show me how to improve my craft on a regular basis. And it's really cool to have that kind of support. And was, was Thai the first school you taught at? Second. Second? What was the first? First one was a school called Norman Thomas. It's actually closed now. Uh, what happened? Essentially, this was a really tough school. This was a school where, you know, academically, students were struggling a lot, you know. Um, students from low-income families, students who, uh, you know, very high at risk when it came to academics. We had a 50% graduation rate. We had a 50% attendance rate. Um, you know, we had metal detectors, which was awful. It just put kids in such terrible moods to get swiped down every morning just for having a cell phone or something like that. Um, as a result of the school not succeeding, they started to close it down. And DOE's got this policy that when you're of least seniority, you're the first one to go. Mm -hmm. So when that school started closing down, that's when I was let go. Uh, Luckily, where, where I, was it in New York? This was on Park and Thirty Third. Oh, yeah, so but it, was... it mainly serves students from uh, Washington Heights, mm. which is a hell of a commute too to put a kid through. Anyway, you know, yeah, it just it was yeah. it was not a recipe for success. You know, speaking of like failing upwards, right? What did you learn from uh, teaching at Norman Downs? A lot of uh, a lot of classroom management. You know, I I was doing things that were so very different from what you might see at Stuyvesant. A lot of it was getting kids to come into class on time, getting mm -hmm. kids to have a routine of taking out a notebook, quieting down, mm -hmm. getting started on the activity. You know, it would take 15 minutes to get a class started. So, you know, but, very rudimentary uh, skills. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine the culture shock when I came here and I'm thinking, okay, well, the first 10 minutes, that'll be for settling down the class and getting them ready. And then you walk in the classroom and every kid's sitting there with their notebook open looking at you. Yeah. And you're like, oh, God, I need to prepare a lot more. Yeah. Well, I guess something interesting is that um, whenever, I'm, uh, I, whenever I have an English class, I mean, every single, Eng Eng every single English class I've been in, um, it really is about getting to participate in the conversation. And it's like, I don't know, uh, every teacher I've had has tried to get the students to talk and get the students to talk in the conversation mm -hmm. with the teacher, with the class. And it's really different from other subjects because yeah. I guess uh, different subjects don't really uh, talk as much. And like my physics, my physics class, these have, my teacher's having a hard time getting kids to participate. Mm -hmm. My math class, kids don't participate. But like, cold calling is something I guess is kind of really helpful within uh, the English department because it helps you, it helps students stay on track, and it really helps the students, yeah. um, I guess, do the work and be able to talk to others in like uh, an environment where it's usually like you stay, what strict to the curriculum and stay strict to just talking uh, about. The class, I guess. Yeah, and going back to like cold calling, I think you do that really well, Mr. Ferenz. Yeah, like you'll do. you'll say something very engaging, and then immediately you'll say like, "Oh, uh, Brittany, go!" Like, what do you think about it? Or like, John, what do you think? Um, I think like like did you always do that? Was it something you learned along the way? How do you think it affects the classroom? And one thing I learned when I got here is essentially this idea that you're talking about that kids are not necessarily going to open up as much, and so what can I do? to help people open up in a way that makes people feel supported and safe. And so there are techniques that you develop. I'll read something over somebody's shoulder and tell them that's a good idea, I'm going to call on you. And it might seem like it's cold calling, but I'm setting them up to succeed in that sense. Or I'll ask questions that don't have a right or wrong answer. And it's really just, how are you reacting to this as a human being? And there's no wrong way to answer that question. And so one of the really profound victories that I get to see over the course of a year is the student who did not open up at all, just beginning to participate a little bit more 
on their own volition, not me calling on them, but them putting their hand up. And it's, it's really exciting to see that because in a way that's a person telling themselves, my voice matters, my voice counts, and you get to see that growth and confidence and it's cool to be a part of it. Speaking of students, there's a, uh, students within class have like a different uh, outwards appearance or a different impression to, I guess, when they would be outside with their friends or um, just hanging out, I guess, with their family or whatnot. But I was, I was thinking, um, I mean, I, I don't try to do that. I try to keep myself as real as possible. But on the other hand, I just wanted to know, like, do you notice when a kid is not like their true self within class or are they playing a, an act? Yeah. Or if someone has like more to offer but they're just maybe shy. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's um, it's hard because how do you measure that? You yeah, know? it's hard. And and sometimes you know you you catch people in the halls and and you get to see a little bit of them opening up in different kinds of ways. Um, I tend to find that if I present an air of authenticity, that students tend to try to match that to some capacity, but. Unfortunately, there are, there are students that no matter how hard you try, they, they just don't necessarily want to open up to you directly. Yeah. And, and I have to totally respect that. You know, that's, that's, mm-hmm. It's almost as though it would be deeply uncomfortable for that student if I kept pushing or trying to make something work that wasn't happening. You know? and, and don't get me wrong, if a kid talks, if a student talks, <laughs> in the context of a group discussion, that's great. But when I ask students to just talk to each other, like, that's... That's communication. That's them opening up. Um, you know, it, it's it's hard for me to see because I really only do see students mostly through that lens of them being in my classroom. So I understand that everyone has different hats that they wear. Uh, do my students know <laughs> you are wearing a hat? That's yes. true. I mean, I, I think about who I am outside of school and... and students not knowing that particular identity as well. You know, there's only so much that we can show to different people in different contexts. How much of, like, how much would you say you would distance yourself, like that outside self, from the teaching self? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Um, like, like, how much of your outside activities would you, like... Or do you know where to draw the line? Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, yeah, a lot of it just, you know personal life stuff, not interested in talking about with my students. Uh, you know, I, I, um, I do feel comfortable sharing little details about my life with students because I feel that that does help make me feel a little bit more authentic and yeah. I'm letting you get to know me in the hopes of maybe that that'll help you open up to some capacity, but I don't know, it's an abstract idea, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like I'm not interested in talking about my dating life or anything like that. Oh, yeah. Like that's not, no, there's yeah, a, that's not the question I have. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, kind of like making a turn. Um, we wanted to ask you, how were you like in high school, um, and maybe the experiences Ooh. you had in English class? If you had a certain teacher that really influenced you in high school or in college, Wait, could you, don't worry you too us much. Where you went to high school? Oh yeah. I went to high school in New Jersey. West Orange, New Jersey was a oh, private no. Jewish day school. No, New Jersey. Yeah, New Jersey. Oh, no. Be careful. No. We're going to have to draw a line. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> Keep you quarantined. Uh, graduating class was 52. What? So what? 50? Very small classes. Whoa. You know, uh, it was also kind of a dual curriculum where half of what it was was traditional uh, American education, and then the other half was, um, I guess, Jewish related classes, um, mm-hmm. you know, learning how to speak Hebrew, uh, Judaic law, Jewish history. Um, yeah, just a lot of that. Um, I hated it. <laughs> I really hated it. I just wanted to go to public school so badly. Oh, it was a private school. Yeah, it was a okay. private school. And so, I mean, you know, you can hear the privilege in my voice. Uh, <laughs> 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 but um, I was super quiet. You know, I. I was not a particularly confident person. Um, you know, I, I would, uh, I was always very interested in making people laugh. And yeah. I imagine a lot of that comes out in my teaching style, but 
I don't know. It, it was a period of time where I was really going through that process of understanding myself and finding myself. And I don't really think that I found my voice until I got to college. It's really like something, I don't know. I've tended to, I've tended to notice that uh, like people who laugh the most, like laugh, talk, uh, like try to joke around the most, usually like, even though I have, they have this really outside persona that's really fun and like, I don't know, enthusiastic, they end up having like the most to share and the most to, I guess, mm. hold back, I guess. Yeah. I also, I just, you know, I, I come from a funny family and there's a lot of value in making people laugh. And so you always want to put yourself in that kind of situation. I think it also serves as a really great coping mechanism. But so, you know, I, I was the guy making good jokes in high school, but <laughs> somebody else would take my jokes and say um, them. You would, know? would you have had a meme uh, page? Oh if you God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, whatever was popular at the time, I don't yeah, know. You definitely would have. And uh, you <laughs> talked about college. Where'd you go to college? University of Maryland, College Park. Okay. Yeah. Why'd you choose you, Maryland? I applied to four colleges. Mm-hmm. Two of them were in New Jersey, so I wasn't going to go to those. Good call. Good call. I applied to <laughs> McGill in Montreal. Uh-huh. Uh, and at my school, you had to send out your application through a college <laughs> advisor. Uh, and something went wrong and my application to McGill never went out. So it's basically a process of elimination. Why only four? Um, I was not the most academically motivated person in high school. I was, and I've, I've seen this type of student in Stuyvesant. I thought that I was smart, but I did not want to prove it by doing work. I know what that means. <laughs> and... <laughs> I did not understand the correlation of being smart is not just feeling that you have a natural intelligence, but it's also grinding it out and doing the work that you need to do to it's, succeed. Yeah, it's not just yeah. grades on paper. That's, Absolutely. I think in, even inside, that's what separates the good students from like the great students. Like yeah. the, you know. Oh, like students that are able to share, be, be able to have like a social conversation or like be able to express themselves, but like at the same time, they get good grades and they're able to do everything and they have this, these lives that are great. But like, there's also students that have like, I don't know, 90, 99s in the classes, in their classes, but they just go home and they just study and they don't really do anything. You know what you're, well, doing? you're talking about that triangle, right? The, the triangle. triangle. It's, triangle? it's good grades, friends, friends, and I think sleep is the third right. one. And you can only have oh, two yeah. out of three, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I never, I don't like believing don't that, but it turns true. out to be true. Like, I think... If you can manage your time right and you know how to properly do like everything, at a point you could get all three. It's not you sacrifice one for the other. Like you're, they all exist for a reason. Someone will have all of those. It's just you have to like know how to do it. And I guess I, most people just really don't. Yeah. And yeah, I, I don't. Do you think that. it takes a lot of discipline? Do you think it? Do you think? Developing those skills like right now is as is as important. Like, I think like that being able. This is going to sound myopic, but I think that being able to execute a task soundly and on time is one of the most important skills that a person can learn how to do. And. I didn't have that in high school. I did not have the capacity to understand that. Um, I didn't take pride in my work necessarily. I essentially, you know, I, I have an older sister who was never great academically. And so I, as the younger sibling, could just kind of coast because at least I was doing better than her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just, I didn't necessarily understood what it, what it takes. But also, and I see this a lot in some of the freshmen that come here, you do really well in middle school and you just have this natural assumption like, oh, I'm bright. I don't have to study for exams. And then you have to study for exams. And, and there's this cognitive dissonance. Like, why, why is this happening? I've yeah. never studied before. I don't have to study. I'm not that kind of person. Yeah. Then it hits yeah. you that everybody was you in middle school. Absolutely. And it's just a whole other game. I tell it's my just, freshmen, I, I tell yeah. them that uh, 90% of you can't be in the top 10%. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Just check the math on that one first. Yeah. So, like, I'm getting the impression that going into college, you weren't maybe kind of maybe undecided on what you wanted to do in life. Oh, yeah. Uh, when did that change? 
that maybe you wanted to go into English or into teaching? Like, so from the time that I was maybe 18, I was unknowingly starting on a path of becoming a teacher. My aspirations in life in high school and in college were that I never wanted to work. Um, and that's not sustainable. <laughs> yeah. Um, Take notes. You know, my mom is, was uh, a speech pathologist at a uh, special ed high school in Staten Island. And so when I earned six college credits, I became what's known as a paraprofessional. I was an aide to a different uh, student every single day, and I would work summers, and I would work vacations and things like that. At my school, I, um, I was employed at my school's writing center where I would help people with their writing. I eventually went on to TA a bunch of classes, um, you know, do some writing center conventions and things to that degree. I was studying English the entire time, but I was taking very specific steps towards becoming a teacher. After I graduated, I had no plans whatsoever. Um, maybe I'll take the GREs and go to graduate school. Uh, one of my friends was studying business and he was thinking about learning Mandarin, um, thinking that this would be the next big thing. You know, we're, we're talking 2006, so yeah. let's go. He was going basically to Beijing for the year to teach English and uh, it's very interesting. You don't have to have any qualifications whatsoever outside of having a college degree. In fact, me me being American and being a white guy was viewed as an asset because it would bring some kind of like renown to the university that I was working at. So I accepted and, and I spent the year in China teaching English. Wow. Yeah. Something my parents always tell me is that if you don't end up doing well in like America, you could always just get a degree here and kind of just wave myself like back onto yeah get myself back into Burma and then get like a bunch of money there and yeah. just live the life there but, but it, it just really ends up and when you go to those countries it's just you can speak English well and are you an American and that really does get you a lot in those countries yeah. and it's quite odd yeah well there is this this strong need and this strong desire to learn English, and it is viewed as as this really great money making opportunity. And so, apparently, a lot of people make that decision and they go over there. And and I mean, it was an amazing experience. I had a really really great time, but it was also incredibly isolating. I don't speak Mandarin. Uh, my tones are terrible. <laughs> I mean, I could bear and and. To be honest, after a while, I was I was in this town called Yanjiao, which was about 40 miles outside of Beijing. I had my friend, I had a couple other teachers that we were working with, but it was uh, it was very alienating. Yeah, it was. I would go and and you know shoot some hoops and play basketball, and people would crowd around to watch because. Mm -hmm. They'd never met a white person before, and and it was strange to be subjected to that kind of, of, of gaze, in a sense. And, and I mean, there's, weirdly enough, dozens of people in China who have pictures with me. You're in, like, 50 family albums. And, on the walls. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was funny, and it was cool, and then it wasn't, yeah. and I wanted to go home, and I did. Yeah, it's, so what did you do it's, when you got home? What I did when I got home is I got an apartment on the Upper East Side. It Ooh. was it was yeah. essentially it was a closet. Oh, it was tiny. I got it with okay. a friend, yeah. um, and I started picking up work again as a paraprofessional. I was able to get a full time job, which was important because I wanted medical benefits in um, Tottenville High School. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. Let's do some New York geography for a second. Okay. I was traveling from the Upper East Side uh -huh. to Tottenville High School, which is at the very bottom of Staten Island. Wow. Uh, so hour 45-minute commute both ways. Oh, no. I did that for maybe six weeks. Like three and a half hours of your day. Oh, yeah. At least the ferry had nice views, I though. like the ferry ride a lot, actually. Yeah. That was the nicest part. But um, it was very disenchanting. 23 years old, I'm living in New York City, 
and spending that much of my time to make very little money. Uh, I heard from a friend to apply to this program called New York City Teaching Fellows, which basically, once I got in, um, just put me right into the classroom and I was earning my master's degree as I was teaching. So not only was I earning a nominal salary, but I was working towards getting a master's degree. And that's when I started Norman Thomas. So well, everyone's got to start from somewhere, right? Yeah. Best thing I ever did. Wow. Free masters, you know. AmeriCorps gave me $10,000 so I could survive a little bit in the city. But, um, you know, I cut my teeth. I, I learned how to control a classroom. And it set me up for coming here. Mm. Did you ever, along the way, just wonder, like, what am I doing here? Yeah. You're like, just... Still do. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, because it's just this crazy journey. And, and I think that we have this impression that when you pick a job or when you pick an occupation, that it's a series of very calculated steps. And I've got these charts and graphs, and I know exactly what I'm going to do. But it's just the direction of, of where, where I went and what happened. And I'm so fortunate that I ended up here, and I'm happy to be here. Um, but there are moments where I'm in front of a classroom and I'm looking around and I've got 30 some odd people looking at me and trusting me and it's like, what, what is going on? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How did this happen? Yeah. I want to jump off that. How was your, uh, with like the 30 students, how was your very first class at Stye? Very first, first day. So I remember my remember very it? first class was, um, this is not the demo that got me the job, right? This is when I had the this job. When, yeah. not before, the job. after you're a student teacher, okay. I've done like the first official. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was teaching American literature, and to who to like freshmen, juniors, juniors. 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 Okay. And it's funny. This is this is a first lesson, but this is also maybe like the first two weeks as well. I had this impression of Stuyvesant in my mind, of high academics and and. These is like college level stuff that I got to be teaching my students. So when they said American literature, I was like, okay, what did I study when it came to American literature in college? So I'm pulling out slave narratives and and early texts from the 16th century, no, 15th, no, 17th century. 1600. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 you know, and Bradstreet and and uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God and just all this things that I was like, oh, these are essential things that you need to study for American literature. And it was just the driest, most boring garbage. And my students were not having it. I mean, they're as sweet as possible and, and you're the new teacher and we're trying to help you out. And, and I think it must have been the fifth class where I just sat down and I said, guys, this isn't working. Like, what can I do? How can I make this interesting? How can I be better at this? And it was a moment of frustration, but it was also a really powerful moment because I think that's when I first let myself be vulnerable and my students really opened up and and talked about what worked for them in other classes and what they were interested in. And and from that moment on, things began to gradually improve because I started to get a little bit more of what was going to make things work. And to be honest, like, listening to my students has been so incredibly valuable. Yeah. So many teachers have this idea in their mind of, I'm the teacher, I establish what it is, I feed it to you, but there's got to be that dialogue back and forth. And, and when you begin to understand what it is that your students are interested in, that's how you win. That's, that's how you get to victory. I think that's really, if, that, if a teacher ever really opened up to a class like that, uh, in my, if I were in a situation like that, and I, I really admire the teacher for that. Like, yeah. it's mm. it takes a lot to to be a teacher and really be like, I'm having a hard time. I don't know what's happening. I I need your help, and it's not an easy thing to do because as a teacher, kids look up to you. They think you know everything. They they want you to tell them what to do. Well, they don't want you to tell them what to do, but but like they, guide. you're you're the guide, and you're you're set to take care of them for the day. And when someone 
like a teacher opens up to you and they say, help, like help me, it really, it really hits because it shows that they care about you. It shows that they care about what they're doing and it shows that they really need your help and they, they want to have this connection with you, I guess. And I guess that really helped you out because here you are today. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, it's that also just yielded such a powerful experience with the students that I had that year because a lot of it was just growing alongside each other, and it was cool to see that. You know, I, I learned a lot from that class, and it's really dictated a lot of who I am today. I believe. Do you still yeah. remember the the people? Faces more than names. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I had a very frustrating experience a couple of years ago where a student came in and I had had the student the year before and he was so excited to see me and uh, he's like, you remember my name, right? Which is the worst oh, question you could ever ask a person. No, you always got to skirt around that. Well, but, but he, we shared the same first name and that's why oh. it was frustrating. He's also oh. an Eric and so oh. <laughs> I should have known that. It was the most oh. obvious thing in the world. But I also... Um, I'm very fortunate in that when I write recommendations for students or at the end of a semester, students will write me notes and I keep all of them. And if I'm ever having like a really bad day, I'll just take those out and look through them. And that's a good way to just remember your students and keep your students in mind. But I mean, I've been here, I think six years, maybe seven. And if I'm having, gosh, close to maybe 300, Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah. that's yeah. we're getting the thousands of faces at this point. Wow. You ever just think about that? Just it's crazy. Just if you yeah. look out into like an audience, like it fill up two thousand seats. Or I, the whole Stuyvesant Theater. The whole Stuyvesant <laughs> Theater. No. Full of people that Imagine the papers. Per semester, oh. five papers per semester. That's what I was thinking of. I, I've thought more about the numbers of papers as opposed to the students that I've taught. But but now that you're bringing that up, I am kind of having mm-hmm. this like. Well, moment. Yeah. Oh, you and know, oh, you could ask. Um, you, you talk about like we like a teacher can have like lots of influence on you, right? Like those two thousand kids. Like even though you might not remember them exactly, we can. I guarantee you, they'll all like remember. Oh, I had a Mr. Ferenz in high school, and he was yeah. like so and so, and he acted so and so ways. Like, who are some like who are like the teachers who influenced you and to turn into the teacher that you are today? So freshman year of high school, I had a teacher. His name was Dr. Jonathan Baker. And it's frustrating because I've tried to look him up because I feel like one of the coolest things I could do is to contact the English teacher that really left an impact on me and let him know, like, hey, I'm an English teacher at a pretty damn good high school. Uh, <laughs> um, and I haven't been able to get in touch with him because unfortunately, like, he has a very common name. He yeah. was a Marine. Mm-hmm. And the idea of this Marine who taught literature, you know? I, there's stereotypes about, about literature and it's perceived as this soft science, but it was just very, very interesting and cool to me that you could have this guy who just exuded masculinity, but then was also willing to have this deep interest in getting in touch with his emotional side, trying to understand humanity and and the emotional experience of being a part of that. Um, Two things I really remember about him was uh, when he taught us Julius Caesar, and I do not like Shakespeare, um, but the way that he just performed Shakespeare, he performed Mark Antony after Antony has lied to the conspirators about what his intentions were and and he then has this moment with Caesar's dead body and he's filled with rage and and anger and Dr. Baker performed that for us and just was was terrifying and screaming and, and really acting the hell out of the part and it was so cool to see someone lose themselves in that that like mm-hmm. to see an adult nerd out like that and <laughs> and not care what anyone thought it it was revelatory because it just made you realize like oh like i can do that too i can i can really dive into something and throw myself into it even if i might look a little stupid and produce something really awesome and inspiring he also turned me on to kurt vonnegut 
which mm. is not someone who I read a lot of anymore, but was a very important author to me yeah, as was, a high school I was, student. I was going to jump into that. Like, yeah. what are your Julius Caesar books? Like, what are those books oh, yeah. that you lose yourself in when you're teaching? Or like, what's your favorite book? You know, it's interesting when it comes to that because. I think the best way to consider that question, because it's a question I think about a lot, is really the books that are important to a person at different points of their life. Mm -hmm. You know, high school, it was Vonnegut. For college, for me, it was Ernest Hemingway. Uh, You know, uh, Ernest Hemingway writes these very male characters who feel very deep emotions but don't express them very well and that just reminded me of my experience and my experience with my father in particular and so I really enjoyed that Um, Mm -hmm. I came to learn that that's not the most healthy way (laughs) to express your feelings but uh, so I kind of moved away from that Um, you know I would say most recently There's a very weird thing that happens when you enter your 30s as a man, particularly a man who lives in New York City, which is you just get very interested in reading nonfiction and history. Mm -hmm. It's a weird phenomenon that I've seen a lot of my friends go through. Uh, So I've really read some very, very fascinating books in the past year or so about uh, the rise of Al-Qaeda and leading up to 9-11. I've... Read this really great book about the uh, Israelis and the Egyptians working together to reach some sort of compromise in the Middle East. Um, you know, any kind of, of New Yorker article or anything like that, I find to be particularly interesting. But as of late, you know, and, and you can imagine, as someone who teaches a Women's Voices elective, I have been just really making sure that I've been reading a ton of women authors and I've been catching up on a lot of theory and that to me is, is probably the most interesting thing right now but as far as a single book mm-hmm. nah too yeah. hard. it's too hard of a question you know mm-hmm. is there a maybe not personally but maybe like a favorite book to teach I know that's also maybe very hard because you, you taught a lot of books but is there one book that maybe you teach you try to teach every year maybe you have like a changing rotation but there's one book that's always there that you want your students to learn about I don't teach sophomores I haven't done for a long time but one of my favorite books to teach was Crime and Punishment just because it's such an incredible book Um, you really get carried away with just how Dostoevsky wrote and, and the command of the language that he had but then also the emotions that you feel as you're reading it but to be honest, I really I like a lot of the books that I teach. Um, I taught Gone Girl. Oh yeah, I was there. Yeah, Gone Girl was really cool. I thought that was a really really great experience. You know, just to jump into something completely new and figure it out. I'd never taught that book before, and it was very cool to read that alongside my students and to find lessons that worked. You know, part of that is is part of the fun and part of the challenge. I'm reading Kite Runner with my freshman right now, and I hate that book, but they love it. <laughs> and so, wait, why hate Kite Runner? Why, like, if anyone has read Kite Runner before we should I, should I announce spoiler alerts? I mean, I, sure. I've read it. All right, spoiler. I alert. haven't read it, you but now reading. that you said you didn't like it, I won't read it. No, it's it's, it's a wonderful <laughs> book, and it's really good. I would call it beach reading. Um, oh, okay. It, oh, okay. It has a lot of good themes, and I think it's a great book for freshmen because they enjoy it and and student interest really is what drives me so if if their interest is there then I can talk about it but it's a book about a young man who witnesses his friend get sexually assaulted and he does nothing and he carries this guilt around with him for his entire life towards the end of the book he has this opportunity to redeem himself and to absolve himself of his sin and it just turns into this weird action movie and it, it feels abrupt, and it doesn't feel natural. And mm-hmm. I imagine it's a great movie because of the way that it's written, but it just, the storytelling is a little confusing, and, and I didn't necessarily appreciate that kind of turn. So I'm guessing, um, based off our conversation now, what do you think is the most important feature of a novel, I guess? What I look for when it comes to teaching a book is 
how is this going to speak to my students? How is it going to speak to them on an emotional level? And if it can engage them on an emotional level, I think that's particularly powerful. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be about their experience. It has to be, how can I make that connection there? How can I get them to realize that no matter what the story is about, that literature is just a reflection of our own lives? So that's huge. But as I was just mentioning too, like student interest is very important. Mm -hmm. If I can get a book and I can say, hey, this is a book about a man who might have murdered his, his wife, yeah. that's it. Students have bought in. I'm good. Any taboo subjects I like to bring up in the classroom, because I know that it's going to drive interest. Yeah. yeah, what do you, do you think of like an English class, like, do you think it should be more current or more based in the past, like more based in essentials? Because there, there are two types of English teachers that I've experienced. There's the teachers who go, well, we're reading American literature, so we got to work through the years, and you start way back and you make your way forward. And in my personal experience, it's like, I don't really engage with the books from the 1800s, right? But then sometimes I read, there are other teachers who like, who like to teach more current books with more impacts in today. And like, for me, I find that more interesting like now. You know what I mean? So Very it's much like, so. so it's like, what types, like, what do you, do you think literature has to be based on like the essentials, like from 1800s, like your Charles Dickens and such? Or do you think we should be more focused on like now? You know, just, just to be a little bit controversial, but the way that the English curriculum works here is not necessarily how I would do it if I had control. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier I don't teach sophomores, and a lot of that is because, number one, I don't feel comfortable teaching the classics. Um, my first time reading the Odyssey was here, <laughs> so that doesn't put me at an advantage, but I feel like, outside of AP classes, of course, I feel like my job is to get students interested in literature to the point where they want to write about it. And unfortunately, there is this stigma that comes with older texts that this doesn't speak to me, this doesn't connect in any kind of way. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of teachers that will teach The Scarlet Letter, and you can totally apply that to modern times. You know, there's, yeah, you know, and, and I know that she works with um, an author that I really love, and I've read most of his books, John Ronson, and uh, he wrote this book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And that's essentially oh. all that yeah, The Scarlet Letter is about. Class, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you can make it modern, but if I can't find that entry point, I don't want to teach it because I know what you're saying. It has to feel relevant because, and, and the burden of making it feel relevant should come on the teacher because if, if you're the student, how do I know you're going to put in that effort to try to make it relevant on your own? What direction do you have? Like, nah, it's, it's in my court. Yeah. Talking about writing, um, I, I've noticed as a student in your class, you have a you you pay attention to writing a lot more than maybe uh, certain themes. I mean, you still talk about themes a lot, but I remember one of the first things you said was you love like deeply love writing. Mm. And I just I was just wondering, as as a teacher, what do you look for in students' writing from a book, and um, like and what kind of tips or like certain skills do you think we can improve on uh, through your experience? That's that. I'm a big fan of art, which <laughs> sounds kind of silly to say, but you know, a couple hours in a museum is just so much fun to me. And what makes it even better is when you go with someone and, and you stop at a painting and you have a conversation about it and what you see in that painting or what's coming out to you or what details are standing out to you. The artist is creating something and putting it out into the world and then giving the audience the opportunity to interpret what that is. And thus, we can talk about it and we can have those kinds of conversations. You might wonder what it's like to teach a book year in over and over and over again, but it's actually a fun experience because it's like a movie that's just so good and so layered. Every time you revisit it, there's just new things that you can see and, and students help me understand things about books that I haven't seen before or considered before because of the limitations of my perspective. And when I think about good writing, that's what I'm looking for. I want to know, what do you see in the text? What do you see in the text from a creative capacity 
that maybe I hadn't thought of before or, you know, taking a risk. Here's a word, here's a phrase that stood out to me and it makes me think of X, Y, or Z. I want to talk about it because it's leading me to a particular conclusion. So much of, of, of the writing that I get is, is oftentimes just regurgitation and, and that's not really saying much. I can read Spark Notes too. You really want to see students take a risk. And that all goes back to making sure that you have students that feel comfortable taking those risks. You know, writing is, is a hard process. A lot of people think that it's, it's just a skill that you have or you don't, and so there's this unwillingness to work on it. I have a mm -hmm. student who get a B minus on a paper, and then the next paper, their grade is only a little higher, and there's frustration over why am I not improving dramatically? And it's hard as a teacher to tell someone, hey, like this is a skill that you have to hone over years. It's like lifting weights, I guess. Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. One day, pick up a five pound weight, and then the next session, you pick up a twenty pound yeah. weight. Absolutely. Like today, works. today actually, I was reading my final paper for English last year, mm. and. When I was writing that paper, I was like, oh, my God, I'm such a good writer. This is such a good idea. You know, I, I, I really like what I did, and I got a good grade on it. But as I read it now, it's like, oh, my God, what was I doing? Like, there were so many different ways I could have took, like, the way I could have, like, explained my argument or if it's a creative piece, certain things that I could have done differently, you know. And, um, yeah, like you said, it is something that you hone in. And as you read more books, your perspective changes on how you want to write, how you want to tell a story. You know, you're never going to write anything that's perfect. You're always going to go back to it, and you're always going to try to think, how could I have said it differently? And a lot of us focus on that. We tend to self-criticize and, and be really hard on ourselves in that degree. But I think what's also important to realize is just saying something and putting it on paper and then putting it out into the world is a brave act. And it's important to acknowledge that you are doing something where you are being vulnerable in a way that is so much more than a math problem. And that, that's something to be admired. So when you, when you grade papers, um, do, you, do you keep, because you have, you've got a degree, a, a bachelor's and a master's degree in I English. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so do you keep in mind that, I guess we're ninth graders and 11th graders, 11th graders and like, our, our writing is not really like, uh, I don't know, excellent. It's not yeah. great. Yeah, I'm guessing. Like as, or maybe I could say it in this way. Do you expect on yeah on top of that? Do you expect more from your 11th graders than from your ninth graders? Yeah. Do you see like development by age? It's a very different relationship because I work with my freshmen for the entire year, mm -hmm. and I like that because I get to see them through and really focus on what it is that I want to focus on. Um, a lot of times what I'll do is the first assignment that I give is ungraded, and I yeah. use that as a baseline. Mm -hmm. Here's where you're at. Are you going to improve past that? And so then papers after that, I can then measure based on are you moving in a positive direction? Are you taking some of the feedback of what we're doing in the class? Are you giving me what I'm asking for in this particular assignment? And so that becomes that kind of measurement. Um, this is going to be a frustrating answer, but it becomes innate after a while. I actually had a student teacher in the fall and it was a great experience, but it was also a very frustrating experience because I had to explain my practices to someone else. And these are things that I internalize. This is muscle memory. It's yeah. teaching, teaching. You know? And, and <laughs> But like, how do you translate muscle memory into cohesive words yeah. and sentences and it was hard to do but I'm thankful that I had it because at least I could then rationalize what I was doing but mm -hmm. I try to make grading essentially finding where the student is at and then measuring that measuring them against themselves mm -hmm. yeah are there overall the years right like I imagine a bunch of the papers that you get this year will be very similar to a bunch of the papers that you get next year right do you get that experiment experience where like the papers that you get from one year are kind of similar to the ones from last year, like everyone just sort of thinks the same way, or is it like every year it's like a whole new batch? Well, you know, it's interesting because different teachers will try different assignments, and I'm always really retooling and trying different things, but 
one thing that I try to do with assignments is that I try to incorporate not just the analysis, but then also some sort of personal narrative as well. And in that, you get to learn more about the students, you get to learn more about their personal stories, and so that kind of creates a new feature to it. But there are assignments sometimes where I'll ask myself, is this something I want to read? Mm-hmm. And, and if the answer is no, then I might change the assignment around and I might make it a little bit more interesting. You know, the, the, everyone reads The Great Gatsby and at the beginning of the first chapter, Gatsby's reaching his arms out to this green light and what does the green light represent? It's the most boring paper ever written and everyone writes about it and I, ne- I don't ever want to read that paper. So I don't assign it. I think Are there any in Bronx yeah. Times told me about them writing about the green light in a great Gatsby. <laughs> Are there any specific papers that stand out to you over your uh, last eight years? I had a student who, um, her name was Bonnie, and I had her for three semesters, really quiet student, but came out of her shell more and more. And we had just finished Fun Home by Alison Bechtel, which is a graphic novel about a, um, a queer woman's experience coming to terms with understanding her father's suicide. And... Bonnie created her own miniature graphic novel. She was an amazing artist, but produced this piece of work, this art. And uh, through the help of, I think it was Bernstein, entered into a contest and she won a $10,000 scholarship for the, for the art that she had created. Wow. And. I didn't ask her to do the assignment. I didn't ask her to do the work. She just kind of did it on her own because she wanted to create that. But the idea that because I brought that book into the classroom, that that just led to this series of events where she then went on and created that. It was it was just so cool and amazing. And it's reminding me that I want to think about how to make assignments where students have the opportunity to express themselves in that kind of way. Because it's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he did speak about like art, and you just brought up graphic novels. Like I wanted, it's gonna. It, I know you shouldn't really admit this to an English teacher, but I did read the Kite Runner in graphic novel before I read the book of it. And like, I mean, what is what is your opinion on like just the the place of art and graphic novel and graphic novels in today's literature? I read a ton of comics and graphic novels, so mm-hmm. I'm all about it. Oh. Um, yeah, like la- while I was in your class, I was reading Watchmen mm-hmm. on the side. Yeah, I love Watchmen. Oh, oh, and they're making a new show of it on HBO. I saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Much looking forward to it. I thought the movie was good. I know it's getting off topic, but it's it's the movie was okay. But I'm I'm looking forward to the new one. No, I enjoyed it. It's you know it it depends because you're going to get different qualities and and there are graphic novels that you can read that are just fun and have really cool, great stories and have awesome art. Um, And then there are graphic novels which have a considerable amount of depth to them. And it's not just about the story that they're trying to tell, but it's the idea of why did I choose this medium specifically as opposed to others? Okay. Aaron, this is a cool voice effect. Is this picking up on the mic? Oh, oh yeah, uh, probably. Yeah. Okay. So Charlie Brown adult voice. <laughs> trying to preface this to everybody, uh, if you didn't know, we're recording this in Stye. Yeah. And we just put an announcement out. And if you heard some people outside previously, those are people outside making a lot of noise. Yeah. So we'll try and uh, um, going forward. Yeah, we're working on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure we can do much about it. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, all right, so going to the opposite end of the spectrum, sure. um, what was your strangest experience in Stai? Like, what was, I guess, this experience the most su- surprised you as a person? Deep question. No, and, and, and it's, it's it powerful. It just be a weird thing. Yeah. Um, trying to think. You know, Today's an interesting day that we're recording because I heard some sirens outside earlier. Mm -hmm. And I'm upstairs in the sixth floor break room where the English teachers hang out. I peek out the window and there's got to be 15 police vans outside. Today? Yeah. Do you guys know what that's about? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I don't know if I want to talk about it. Um, Okay, wait, tell me later. No, no, and and, you you can talk about it later, but it it just reminded me of... uh, being in school after the Halloween attack 
And I know yeah. that that's not necessarily maybe the answer you're looking for, but really it was just very surreal. You know, it's um, part of the experience of being here and working here is you're at a school that has at least citywide, if not sometimes national attention. And yeah. to see where you work in national news which is very strange and surreal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got... As a student, that was really weird. Before, before my mother called me, my cousins from Maryland did. Cause they just look, they sure. just look on the news. Yeah. And um, my father, you know, you know, so proud of his son being at Stuyvesant and whatnot. He drove them by the school when they came to visit New York. And about three or four months later, they just look in the news and they see my school. Yeah. So they just shoot me a call. And this is before I know what's going on. So that's how I learned about it. Oh, yeah, it's crazy because... The Halloween uh, attacks were yeah, interesting. Because when I got home, my parents weren't the only ones asking about me. Uh, my relatives, if uh, most people didn't know, I'm from Burma, which is all the way across the world. But mm-hmm. uh, even they were asking about me because they heard about it on Facebook. They saw it on Facebook. They're like, oh, my, my daughter's son goes there. My grandson goes there. So most of them just, call them. Yeah, my grandson goes there, and, like, <laughs> and then they they really reached out, and I was like, "Wow, this is this is so yeah. strange because this is my school really in like the spotlight of the world at the moment." Yeah, and it's funny because me and Cheyenne were in the same classroom at that yeah. moment, and we were kind of um, really not paying attention. We just saw a bunch of kids run into our classroom, and they, it took like, hours for yeah. it to really oh internalize. God. Were you were you guys in that classroom for a couple hours? We, yeah, we oh had yeah. computers. Yeah. Like nine we, uh, yeah. uh, mine was bad because I was on the fourth floor. Pretty not a we didn't get an angle on it, but we were close by, like where we could see the police. Mm. Uh, yeah, we were in that room for. I mean, when did we leave? At like eight. It was a long time. Yeah, one, one of I mean, I think the thing that made it real was when the when like the police detectives, not like the street cops, but like the the soon tie kind of like, you know, big badge Brooklyn came Nine-Nine. in. Yeah, <laughs> when they came in and talked to us, that's when it's like, oh, this isn't just like they a small every room, room, right? You know what did it for me? When John remembers this, we were in the computer lab. And we would just be refreshing, like just looking up Stuyvesant and, and the yeah, death yeah. count, the death count and the injury oh, count yeah, just kept going up yeah. Yeah. and up. Yeah. And you just had to sit there going, that happened right out there. And you're yeah. like, I just hope no one I know is in that position oh God, right yeah. now. Yeah. Or like no kids. Yeah, so some of our friends were like right there. Yeah. I had a couple friends that were walking to uh, football practice and they saw like yeah. a thing happen. It was just kind of. It's interesting because. On a daily basis, what are we thinking about the class that I'm going to teach? You guys are thinking about a test. It, it pales in comparison to matters of life and death, and there's a sense of security that we have here, and and that just shattered that, and that was that was weird. But it was also very weird as to how quickly the students bounced back from it. Yeah, it's yeah, like there was out like it was just so much support going yeah, on for yeah. the next few days. Yeah. But like going to school for the next couple of days was. Weird. Yeah, we had to walk around. We had to walk oh, around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It felt like at the detour. It and, felt like a camp. And it was like a weird cloudy day. Yeah, like oh, extremely yeah. bleak. Yeah, yeah. It, like and yeah. all you could think about is just what happened yesterday. Yeah, yeah, and just insane. Yeah, I still remember that extremely vividly. Um, you know, there are like some moments that I feel like are like just watershed moments. You know, and like. I feel like first I, one of them, went, like the last comparable one would be like, you know, 9-11. And like, sure. even though I, I know you weren't there at Stuy for that, but like, I can only imagine what like faculty have been through. Like, because the, like, there are faculty who have been here for both, you know, and sure. you have to wonder like to go through it twice and still just come back with the same amount of passion yeah. is admirable. You know, it's funny that day. I was really just looking out for students and trying to make sure that everyone was okay and helping them leave the building and things like that. But yeah, when when I got home, I mean, I I don't I haven't had panic attacks for a long time, but I I nearly had one because I I wasn't thinking about myself mm-hmm. and how I felt about what was going on. Mm-hmm. But you know, you you call people, you talk to them, you talk it out, and and you're not normalizing it, but you find a place for it. Yeah. 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 That was a hard topic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So maybe real curveball there. Yeah, to yeah. go throw a bit of curveball. Mm. Um, 
in your class, you play a lot of music. I do. Oh, yeah. I want um, to ask about that. And a lot of it is good, but sometimes, I'm not going to lie, it's some weird European disco music. <laughs> uh, Considering that I, like I'm still we're in reading, your class, I want you to know that it's the best like, music I've ever heard. I've okay, never heard yeah. anything but Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. 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 Scott, who's that? <laughs> like, I would, like, I would like try to secretly take out my phone to Shazam oh, I, some songs. I'm not going to lie. I've, yeah. I've done that multiple times. <laughs> it's funny. Like, what is this? But like you should drop yeah. So where where did you yeah, always yeah. did you always plan on doing that? And like where does this music where does your music taste come from? So I actually do have a Spotify playlist right now um, that is public. My seniors asked for it, so I made it public for them. Um, shout it out! Yeah, shout it out! This is the best place to plug it. I mean, yeah. it says my name. I don't know how to. If anyone's this name, deep into oh, our okay. podcast and is still listening, thank you very much. Very creative playlist name. It's called Class. Oh. <laughs> Can so there be abstract. more than one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, Eric a lot of class. it depends on different things. I mean, lately I've been playing a lot of um, what's called Tropicalia, which is Brazilian music. Um, and I just like it. It just it sounds like a nice, warm, sunny day. And so I've been playing some of that. Um, what's the weirdest music phase you've been through? Oh, God. I mean, I was very much into, um, I would say, like, hardcore punk when I was in high school. Um, one thing I don't know if you, you realize or anything, but the, being alive during the transition from compact discs to an iPod mm-hmm. was monumental. The idea that you could store days of music on a device just changed the game completely. And friends, we would go and we would we'd share CDs and, and, and just build up our collections. And so I was really trying to get into as much different kind of music as possible. Um, Do you miss them? CDs? Like CDs, mm. going to the record store? Um, no. I'm not a store mm. person. Mm. Like... I, I don't enjoy going into stores and shopping for things. I'd rather just get it online. But yeah. I, and I understand the yeah. nostalgia that's there. Yeah. But because I hear a lot about that, like, yeah. I like I'm like a video this. game guy. Yeah. And I, I buy a lot of. I used to buy a lot before. Um, you could buy stuff on like digital, like online. Yeah. Uh, I used to really get the disc from like GameStop or yeah Target. I guess like and it's really nice to just have the hard copy. Yeah. Same. Like, I still go to GameStop because I want the case. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and there's that excitement of, like, browsing and then buying and taking it home, and I just don't subscribe yeah. to that at all. I want, yeah. I love, like, subscription stuff that I can just, mm. I have my Spotify, I can get everything I want yeah. at my fingertips. It's really subjective. You know? How was the, the LimeWire days? <laughs> <laughs> LimeWire, Kazaa. Remember when Napster first came out? Like, they had a concert in New York City, and me and my friends went there. The FBI um, is actually listening. No, no. If, if, if <laughs> really, really weird music. If you, I, I love this band from the 1960s from Germany called Kraftwerk. Um, they essentially invented dance music. And to hear the stuff that they produced in that time period, it just feels so ahead of the game and so cool. But I'm fortunate in that I have a lot of friends who are music nerds, and so they really get me into whatever it is that they're listening to. But... The real thing that I appreciate about having music in my classroom is, and a lot of people don't realize this. Um, they look like drones. Yeah, no, they, they, they look like robots. They, yeah, they actually, act like robots. 700,000 monthly listeners. It's pretty good. Oh, Mr. Friends is one they're, they're like historical, <laughs> aren't they? Well, when you're a teacher, you want to have timed activities. So I actually mm-hmm. will play songs based on how long that they are. Oh. And I use that. that when I know the song is over, it's time to end the activity. Yeah. So it's it's a combination of I want to keep my students interested. I want to keep them in a nice, chill environment. But also, it's just me kind of maintaining control over the classroom with this like invisible hand. Yeah. I also tend not to play music with lyrics. Yeah. When students are writing, because I'm the kind of person that I can't listen to music when I'm writing. I can't listen to music with vocals it's same with me because then I'll write the words down as I'm hearing them so yeah or the words will bleed into your thoughts yeah most definitely yeah yeah okay um so. are we gonna wrap or uh, you wanted to ask I one mean, more question yeah. right yeah. um before coming to Stye you said that um you know, 
you know how you said that uh, you don't really know what the next step is, right? Mm. I, uh, before you came to Stai, you gave an interview to The Spectator where you said you'd be open to uh, uh, work at a university one day down the line. Would you, and this, like think of, thinking about like today, would you like skip out on Stai and then go to a university? So currently my plans are not to do that because... Mm-hmm. Um, for a lot of reasons, but also just because financially it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Um, if I were to, let's say, go to the next level and become a doctor of English, it would be very hard for me to secure a university position. Mm-hmm. And so what happens next? Do I come back here? Mm-hmm. And then I'm a doctor, and I have all the fees right. of tuition, and I'm getting paid the same exact salary. So is this your end game? Um, this, is, this is where the career ends? What I've thought about is when I'm done teaching, when I retire, because um, I can technically retire in 20 years mm-hmm. at 55. Yeah. So I think then if I'm in a financially stable situation, then I would go back to college and maybe get a doctorate. I don't know if I want to teach at a university. Um, I think that it's something for incredibly hardworking, talented people, and I don't know if I could cut it yeah. because, I mean, it's 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 like the NBA. You know, there's there's only so many spots at universities for a person who teaches English. So, if you're planning on getting the doctorate like only very late in your life, is that kind of just going to be like a, a, a memorabilia or just like, just to do it? Just yeah. to do it. Okay. I also I have a um, I have a younger brother who is currently on a doctor track, and it's just competition. <laughs> <laughs> you just gotta edge out. Yeah. Yeah. I just I can't like it's frustrating to me that he's going okay. to reach that. If milestone. you could though, if say say logistically all of it works out, and say there's one spot available at your dream school, where would you go? Like to teach. You know, it, it's it's interesting because as a lot of people are thinking about what colleges to attend and stuff like that, every college has such a wonderful amount of resources and, mm-hmm. and opportunities for teachers. Like, you know, I'd be fine, but maybe somewhere nice where the weather is nice. Maybe Santa Cruz or That's something. Fair. You That's know? fair. I can take that. <laughs> All right. Aaron, do you want to ask the last question? Another uh, question or should we just no, end it I off think, here? I think it's good. All We've right. been here for... For like, how long has it been now? Wow, we've been here. Okay, so chances that right. people are even so, this far back. Thank you, <laughs> so everyone, for listening to our podcast. Yes, and if you stuck around for this long, that's amazing. And, yeah, and uh, if, if you have, please um, email us if about any comments about the podcast. Email us at cybersonpodcast at gmo and uh, you could check this out on, as we said before, YouTube, Spotify. Uh, SoundCloud, 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 and our website, our website. Uh, yeah, it'll mostly be on Facebook, but um, yeah, yeah, please, please send us any comments, anything you like, anything you dislike. Also, um, uh, Mr. Friends, yes, if you want to plug anything? This is your, this is your chance. You're in the spotlight now. I appreciate that. I, I have no upcoming gigs to plug. Maybe okay. plug plug your women's voices class. Yeah, Would you I, I teach a senior elective called Women's Voices, where we only read works written by women, but we also spend a lot of time talking about a great deal of women's issues. Uh, you know, anything that you might have missed from other classes that isn't part of the curriculum, we try to cover. We try to make sure that uh, we have some really strong and healthy, empowering discussions about what it means to be a woman in the world today and how to be an ally to women in the world today. All right. All right. So yeah. that was great. And thank you for, as again, right again, thank you for joining our podcast. And that's it. Yeah. Thank you very much, Mr. Friends. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank- Bye. <laughs>